0: It was always our intention to lay out that broad framework of strategy at the beginning so people could see the full scope of the strategy and then lay out the details. Now, you're right. Expectations get ahead of the policy. Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm
1: Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And at the top, you heard Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner Um, Speaking on Charlie Rose, it's Wednesday, March 11th.
0: On today's show, we're going to hear from someone who used to work at the IMF and who thinks that the nationalization of banks is not such a great idea. We're also going to continue trying to get an answer to the question, who do we blame for this current mess?
1: And we will also hear from a listener in Oklahoma. But first, Adam, the Planet Money Indicator.
0: The Planet Money Indicator is 14. 14. 14 meetings that you and I have scheduled for Thursday and Friday, along <laughs> with David Kessenbaum. This is the week that you and I, who have spent a lot of time in New York, are going to D.C. to try and figure out. We're meeting with lobbyists. We're meeting with banking groups. We're meeting with consumer advocates. We're meeting with congressional staff. Now that Washington has such a huge influence over the U.S. and global economic uh, system, the financial system, far more than it ever has before, we want to understand
1: it a little better. Right. Right. And I'm looking forward to that, to that, to uh, all those talks a lot. Yeah, so, yeah. Although they'll all be off the record, so there will be no tape. Yes. Right. And we won't be allowed to tell you what we hear. No, we will a little bit, right? It'll inform what It'll we say. It'll inform what we say. Exactly. It'll make Planet Money a better, more informed podcast. <laughs> we will be able to tell you what we heard. We just, we just won't be able to tell you who told us. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So we have been talking an awful lot about nationalization. The question of should the U.S. government in some way take over big U.S. banks then at some point sell them on to someone, to some other private um, individual. We've heard an awful lot from Simon Johnson, former chief economist of the IMF. And and what he's said many times is this is a no-brainer for anyone who has ever worked at the IMF. They know that nationalization is the right choice. And then I was thinking that we know another guy who also was chief economist of the IMF and who who disagrees with Simon. That's uh, Raghuram Rajan. He's at the University of Chicago uh, Booth School of Business. And I called him up and asked him, you know, why why do you disagree with Simon?
2: The real issue seems to be that um, uh, these guys are slowly bleeding and the government continues to keep putting up money. that 's that 's right, and the question is, will the government save all that money by nationalizing and The answer is maybe not, probably not, and maybe it may have to spend more here 's why uh, The real problem with many of these institutions is they 're too big to fail right you can 't fail them. Uh, uh, overnight. You can't shut down Citibank. You can't shut down Bank of America. So this is why they're on life support. If you do take them over uh, and nationalize them, you still won't be able to fail them in the sense that impose losses on the debt holders. All you will do is recognize the fact that you have a majority of the equity. My sense is, that creates more problems because on the one hand, uh, you've now converted Citibank or Bank of America into a government bank, which then means all the debt holders have uh, claims on the full faith and credit of the government of the United States. So overnight, uh, debt which was being uh, traded as if it was private debt and uh, you know risky now becomes riskless and you've made a wonderful new grant to the debt holders. So. In order to wipe out 10, 15, 20 uh, billion of equity in some of these banks, you're going to make a massive transfer to the debt holders. So uh, nationalisation without failing the banks, to my mind, is just uh, uh, is not a cost-effective operation. Now that obviously ignores the additional dimensions of nationalization, which is that you have government ownership, which then means the public treats these banks as government entities which have certain responsibilities and certain limitations on their activities. So, for example, if a a government bank tries to close down a firm which is underperforming or should be closed down, there will be a huge uproar saying, you know, you guys are are punishing us and politicians will be asked to uh, influence the bank to stop it from foreclosing. So my fear is that in the middle of a recession, having large parts of the banking system owned by the government will make it much harder to do the necessary cleaning out of the uh, industrial sector that is needed to come out of it. And, uh, you know, In order to eliminate zombie banks, we will create a lot of zombie firms. The the, the final aspect, of course, is that in this recession, if you have a bunch of uh, entities owned by the government, uh, you're going to have a lot of capital migrating towards these entities away from the private entities because these government entities are safe. Uh, That's going to uh, create an unlevel playing field. But unfortunately, at the same time as that capital is migrating, you're going to have talent Migrating from the government banks, where there are pay restrictions, etc., to the private banks, so you'll have an unequal distribution of resources and talent, which is not going to serve the country well. So I think it's complicated.
0: Another issue. I mean, I, I keep thinking this nationalization debate is almost like, you know, if if. If God forbid, I had a horrible disease on my leg, and some doctors were discussing whether to amputate my leg or not, mm-hmm. and one doctor is saying, we have to, or else the disease will spread, and the other doctor is saying, well, wait a second, he won't, a leg is really good. He won't be able to run if he doesn't have a leg. He won't be able to, you know, lead a normal life.
2: That's a great analogy. Right. Uh, 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 That's a great analogy.
0: I mean, of course we don't want to nationalize. Of course it's a terrible idea. It's the stupidest idea in the world. But... It might be the only decision, only only solution, right? According to some people,
2: it seems to me that uh, some combination of what has already been proposed should actually be implemented. And we've talked and talked about it, but never not never actually taken action. We need to take some of the bad assets off the balance sheet. We need to recapitalize the banks uh, um, to the extent that is needed. After that, um, and you know, that might mean more and more government ownership. That's that's a possibility. Uh, this combination plus the third, which is the TALF, which is already underway, it seems to me if these three are conducted appropriately, will leave a much healthier and cleaner banking system. And, and I think that uh, if it is done, it may require more money than currently uh, they have asked for, but it should be a high priority because it seems to me that what transforms a recession into a depression is a failed financial system
0: and and this is where i start getting you know my my heart starts racing because mm. um because that's exactly what the folks for nationalization say and mm. and and that's where we the non-economists it's so confusing the stakes are so high and you're telling me if we nationalize, we might have a depression, and they're telling me if we don't nationalize, we might have a
2: depression. No, no. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying if we nationalize, we'll have a depression. No. I, I'm saying we need to fix the bank. If we don't fix the banks, we will have a depression, right? Now, nationalization, it seems to me, is, is, is people say is one way of fixing the banks. And I'm, I'm saying if you don't fail the the bank, if you don't impose the losses on bondholders, I don't see much that's gained from nationalization. I don't think it's the end of the world. I just don't see that much that's gained, and I see some downsides. But I would say that if that's the only way you're going to do it, do it. But it's not going to add that much. The real issue is the taxpayer, uh, unfortunately, is has to put in more money into the system. Hopefully, much much of it will be recovered. But has to put in more money in the short run, both in buying these toxic assets off bank balance sheets and recapitalizing the banks so that the banks then have clean enough balance sheets such that they will begin to lend when the system recovers. It's also very important to make sure that you don't have this overhang of institutions which are near failure, which could, uh, in a sense, prevent lending because people are really worried about what might happen next. But but if you can clean up the system, uh, my sense is, uh, you know, uh, whether you, you call it nationalization or call it cleaning up by uh, by putting more money without actually nationalizing, cleaning up is, is the first order thing.
1: So, Adam, I have to say that Raghu Rajan, there's a sort of a flaw I feel like in his argument, or I just want I'm to throw out a devil's advocate here, like that, that 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 just pick a pick an argument with him. He's sort of saying that like he actually doesn't think that if we nationalize or if we don't nationalize, it's going to be that big a difference. But the people who are for or nationalization, just some costs, yeah, right? but the people who are for nationalization say if we don't nationalize, it will be terrible. We we will have a depression. Um, so. If the people who are saying we need, must nationalize have this horrible consequence of not acting, whereas he doesn't have a horrible consequence, why, why risk it? Why not just go – why not just nationalize?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really confusing. It reminds me of Pascal's Wager, you know, this this idea if you believe in God and it turns out to be true, then you get to go to heaven. If you don't believe in God and it turns out to be true, you go to hell. If you don't believe in God, and that turns out to be true, then then just you wasted time believing in God. Right. Um, so, uh, it, I mean, and it does start to feel like almost like a religious conviction. You know, it 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 it's such a, a huge and unprecedented step for our country. It's it's hard to know. Right. Um, I think what um, what Rajan is saying is no, we have more tools in the toolbox, uh, tools that are more appropriate that'll that'll cost less. Let's use those. Right. Um, we hear at Planet Money. We don't take a side,
1: right, Alex? We do not take a side. We just report the facts. Exactly. Uh, right. And we leave it up to the government. So while the government is working on that, um, we've been trying to answer a question of our own, which I think sort of actually just goes against what we just said about just reporting the facts. <laughs> because we've actually... <laughs> All right, we also try- <laughs> report other we things. We also occasionally, <laughs> you know, sort of like, uh, you know, try to stir things up. So we've been trying to figure out, like, who can you blame for this current crisis? Right, you and
0: I like, can we just quickly say like you and I have been saying something like we think it's an 80-20 thing. Right, Should we explain right. that that, yeah. that that we've looked a lot at the systemic issue that everybody's to blame, that that the whole system is to blame and and we've sort of come up with this very unscientific, you know, it's 80% the whole system and 20% actual villains.
1: Yeah, a bunch of bad actors within that system, which the system itself enabled to arise in a way that perhaps they couldn't have arisen otherwise. But now we're trying to be like, OK, well, now we're trying to say, like, let's get, you know, let's start naming names here. See who see if we can actually find some people who are at fault here. And you um, you had a few ideas, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wrote a blog post yesterday and it's become one of our more popular blog posts. I have to say people really want to figure out who to blame. Right. So I, I listed a bunch of people. Banks sort of obvious, and CEOs and risk managers at banks, traders, credit rating agencies, mm-hmm. um, financial engineers, uh, too much regulation, too little regulation, um, overly complex financial instruments, homeowners
1: who default. And and you can, uh, for those of you who are interested, you can go to npr.org slash money and read that post yourself and sort of you know comment because we've gotten... So far, 99 comments on the blog in response to this post with people having their own ideas, right? Yeah,
0: it's pretty awesome. Just can I read a few real quick? Yeah, sure, sure. Aaron Abdus blames people who spend too much money on Apple gadgets, Apple fanboys. (laughs) I think that is a metaphor for others. (laughs) Timothy Barnes blames Canada. Uh (laughs) And uh, Aaron M. blames it on the rain. (laughs) <laughs> but there's also – there's like an interesting, complex discussion of, of right. who who to blame. It's not and all just jokesters. It's not all just jokesters. Yeah. Right. I just thought the jokesters were funny. So, yeah. Yeah. So – but I did – you know, um, we've been – at Planet Money, I've been – we've been saying like everyone we talked to, every economist, every expert, every non-expert, let's just for a week or two just ask everybody, who do you blame? And so the first person up uh, was actually kind of perfect. It's Martin Wolf. He's – I would say probably the most influential economics journalist in the world right now. He's the chief economics commentator at the Financial Times in London. And I said, who do you blame?
3: I do tend to think uh, that the attempt to find one person a group of people who is responsible for everything like this is is really quite hard. It's, if you like, it's more like the origin of the First World War than the origin of the Second World War. I, I mean, this is sort of famous. In the case of the origin of the Second World War, I think it's sort of reasonably clear, at least in Europe, that Hitler was responsible. It wouldn't have happened without him. But in the case of the First World War, there were a lot of mistakes made by a lot of people who were limited and foolish, but... It took all this to come together to make a a catastrophe on this scale. When I look back on it, I think it's pretty clear, first, that there were exceptional uh, background macroeconomic conditions. I've written about that in my book, which is the global imbalances. And there you have to blame China, Europe, Japan, the U.S. Everybody. That's a, uh, a whole global system which has to do with the failure of the way the whole global capital market system has operated for 30 years. Second, we've, we've been – and this is in some sense just one of those things of history. We've been in a huge credit boom for three decades, and the economy worked really rather well. Credit expanded extremely rapidly, particularly in the, in the economy like the US and the UK, over three decades. The economy expanded. It was so called great moderation. Inflation was low. The business cycles were very mild. Everything went really very well. We had occasional shocks like the 87 stock market shock, the 2000 stock market collapse, but everything went on. And that made people feel very confident about taking risk in all sorts of ways. The regulators and the regulated. I think that was really very, very important. Then it's clear in retrospect that the rules we developed for managing monetary policy, which seemed very sensible, essentially targeting inflation. That seemed to work very well for three decades or so. But in the early uh, 2000s, when, again, inflation was well under control, uh, the monetary policy pursued by the Fed was probably too expansionary. Uh, in response to the low real interest rates in the world, the low inflation, they allow, and their concern about the post-stock market collapse, that there was going to be deflation, they probably expanded too much. And this Facilitated, though I don't think it was by any means the, co- the, the sole cause. This huge housing bubble, which created another apparently irresistible uh, situation for borrowing, lending, expanding credit, and we had this gigantic credit boom in this uh, in this decade. As a result, and at this stage, something very natural happened. People thought this was normal. They thought house prices could never fall because that was. They never had across the country. They thought, therefore, borrowing against housing and lending against housing was completely riskless. They they lived in this very safe world for a very long time. And then the housing market turns. The collateral starts collapsing in value. The loans start going bad. House building starts to collapse. The economy starts becoming weak. Then you discover that these brilliant innovative products, <coughs> which seem to make so much sense uh, in terms of managing risks and distributing risks, have ended up in all sorts of very strange places across the whole world. That creates a panic. Nobody knows where it is, that the, the products are, in fact, impossible to manage now that house prices are falling. And the a lot of the financial institutions that thought they got rid of it discovered they hadn't actually got rid of it at all. So there's a complete mismanagement of the financial system because they didn't think these were real risks. And if you put this together, you get yourself into an enormous crisis, financial crisis. That's essentially what's happened. Then finally, when the crisis hit, and I'm per- certainly guilty of this myself, so I have some sympathy for it, most policymakers around the world didn't, simply didn't recognize how serious it was going to be. They had no idea, therefore, that it was essential to respond ruthlessly, quickly, efficiently, and consistently. And in the U.S., they certainly didn't. So I, I happen to think
0: everything you said was exactly right, but it's very frustrating because judging by my inbox, I can only imagine your inbox, people want blood. They, they want a trial and they want the guilty party to pay.
3: Yes. Is,
0: is there no one we can,
3: you know, have a nice show trial about? Well, I've assumed America being – America. I mean, one of the things that's sort of rather admirable in a way about America, although it's also a little frightening, is that when things like this happen, some people go to prison. Doesn't happen in Britain. We don't put people into prison. It's sort of considered rather rather bad form. They're they're nice gentlemen after all. We allow them to retire gracefully, and they go away. Uh, That's the general attitude to members of the elite. I'm afraid in most of Europe. But here you expect them to pay. So I'm sure some people will go to prison. The obvious people will be some bankers who. There's no question that some people made enormous fortunes uh, on by taking risks, which have landed the public at large their own businesses with unimaginably huge losses. So it's completely understandable you will want these people punished. And in some sense, they're guilty. Although it should be said that if somebody like Chuck Prince, for example, the former chief executive of Citigroup, hadn't done what he did, he would probably have been sacked because everybody expected him to, to do this. You can obviously blame Mr. Greenspan and Mr. Bernanke, by the way, who was very influential then for pursuing a, a too loose a monetary policy for too long. But most people thought it was quite sensible in the circumstances. you know, he, If you read the the, the, the famous uh, symposium they had, I think it was at Jackson Hole, on the time of uh, Mr. Uh, Greenspan's retirement, all the economists who wrote about him would be quite critical now. that, were laudatory to the extreme degree. So, again, you could make him a scapegoat, and indeed he's becoming a scapegoat, and there is some fairness in it, but not that much uh, uh, fairness. Clearly, again, you can blame... You know, the Bush administration was very sloppy about regulation, not very concerned about it. And lots of people will point out, and I think it's right, that there was far too much incentive to invest in housing. People would point to the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the role they played in promoting the, the American dream of home ownership, even by people who couldn't afford it. The truth is, however, I do think these huge manias are social manias. And usually, I wouldn't say this is true of everybody by any means, but usually if you want to find who's the culprit in a huge borrowing and credit mania like this, and this was a huge borrowing credit mania, you probably have to look in the mirror. Because you're probably involved in it yourself. Uh, very often, at least, you're involved in it. The number of people who were involved in the U.S. or the U.K. in the the great housing mania is probably pretty well everybody. So, unfortunately, you, we can find scapegoats, but whether we actually, in the process, find people who are responsible is a completely different matter. And in any case, I think the crucial thing, inevitably, is to learn from this and try and reduce the chances that will happen again any time soon. I, actually. I think it's very unlikely to happen soon. It's probably going to be our children or grandchildren who will do exactly the same thing, and they will think, well, that's happened 60 years ago. It's nothing to do with us. It'll never
1: happen again, so they'll do it all over again. It's human, in other words. So that's some, uh, that's some classic Martin Wolf clear-eyed fatalism. <laughs>
0: yes. I mean, very very reasonable and, and, um, and, and, no fun. and solid and not fun. It's not satisfying. <laughs> I wanted him to say... It's Bill Reynolds' fault. Let me tell you about Bill Reynolds. He's the guy. We can all go to his house right now right. and beat him up.
1: Instead of just sort of standing in your mirror in your bathroom in the morning and shouting at yourself in the mirror. How right. could you have gotten me into this mess? <laughs> right. Reflection. Exactly.
0: But but for those of us, and I say us because I'm definitely on that list, for those who who really do want to, you know, yes, we're all to blame. I, I do buy that, right? Yeah, I think sure. you do, too. I mean, some, yeah, to yeah. some degree, the media is partially to blame, the consumer is to blame. But there are some people who are definitely – Probably more to blame than everyone, and and I think that's something you and I are going to be spending, and the whole Planet right. Money team will spend a lot of the next few weeks
1: on. Right, and there are people who who probably didn't contribute in any meaningful way to the problem, also. You know, right. There are many know. people who are sensible who didn't,
0: you know, aren't in debt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: And, and it's very galling to to them to hear hear us say over and over again, "It's all of our fault." And, right, right. I know. I always
0: picture a guy who's like been totally responsible. His neighbor's been going nuts, right. buying big screen TVs. He has and, his
1: check checkbook savings account, like withdrawals and deductions, balanced all the way for like 25 years. And, yeah, exactly. Right.
0: And the other guy ruins the economy. And now we're saying to the responsible guy, oh, and by the way, it's also your fault. Right. It is not your fault. <laughs> not you specifically. <laughs> there are some people who there. have no blame, I would say. Um, but but there are a lot of people who have blame. Some have more. More on that later. Yeah. You know, Alex, I love Martin Wolf's not only his his essays and 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 comments, but he ha- he hosts this Economist's Forum at the Financial Times website, like a, a, a kind of ongoing, very interesting, high level discussion with some of the world's leading economists on the issue. It's sort of a slightly more serious, slightly less. Um, fun uh, version of, of Planet Money, but very helpful.
1: And we're going to link to it at npr.org money. And speaking of our blog, we have a lot of great stories and pictures that come through there. And one story we've been seeing a lot lately is the story of the struggling retailer um, They're going out of business sales at national chains like Circuit City and linens and things. And there's pictures of empty storefronts.
0: And this guy Jim parrick, senior vice president of Price Edwards and Company that's a commercial real estate company in oklahoma um he he sent us a note he's his company manages twelve million square feet sounds like a lot of commercial space uh, mostly in Oklahoma City and Tulsa and he told um, our own Caitlin Kenny what he has been dealing with lately um is mostly calls from retailers asking if he could cut their rent.
4: We've probably had um Five to 10% of our retail tenants uh, request some type of rent relief. Uh, we haven't gotten many inquiries from more local tenants. Uh, most of them have been national tenants.
0: Have you, in your career and, and working with your company, have you ever seen anything like this before?
4: You know, it happens uh, typically, always happens during a recession. Uh, this time is a little worse than normal. Uh, retailers in the fourth quarter got hammered particularly hard on the national level. Uh, In this part of the country, uh, in Oklahoma, it's not as bad, uh, but retailers here are also starting to feel a little bit of pain. And and one of the hard things for landlords is that uh, because everyone's, uh, it's kind of the the thing to do to request rent relief now, and so landlords have to kind of wade through who's requesting it because they really need it uh, and it will help them out, and who's requesting it because they think they can't.
0: And out of the people who've contacted you recently, would you say most of the cases that they are legitimately having problems, or does there seem to be a decent number of people out there too who are just kind of looking at the market conditions and saying, hey, maybe I could catch a break here?
4: Oh, I would. Say, you know, I would say it's probably really at this point in time, probably about Eighty percent of the people that call really probably do need some help. So most of them are legitimate at this point.
0: Jim says he leaves it up to the landlords whether or not to give retailers rent relief. Um, and but you can actually a lot of them do get like twenty or twenty five percent off their rent.
1: Yeah, it's a tough time to be a store owner or a landlord right
0: um, well Alex I think that does it for us today I want to thank Caitlin Kenny who we should thank every single podcast because she produces it and puts the whole thing together Thank you Caitlin I'm Adam Davidson and I'm Alex Bloomberg and thank you for listening I don't love-